Hi, welcome back to part two of Conan Doyle's Lot 249. And if you can take a second to hit five stars, um, download the podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Storytime Phone. And if you can support the podcast, buy me coffee, Sneakies. Thank you so much for listening and welcome Ghost Addicts. Continuing reading of Lot 249. So Smith rose from the sofa and he said, I must go. I have work to do. And and then um, so the boy just fainted below Abercrombie Smith and then he just saw the mummy and he met Edward Bellingham with his friend Montrose Lee. So continuing. In this strange way had began the acquaintance between Edward Bellingham and Abercrombie Smith, an acquaintance from which the latter at least had no desire to push further. Billingham, however, appeared to have taken a fancy to his rough-spoken neighbor and made his advances in such a way that he could hardly be repulsed without absolute brutality. Twice he called to thank Smith for his assistance, and many times afterwards he looked in with books, papers, and such other civilities as two bachelor's neighbors can offer each other. He was, as Smith soon found him, a man of wide reading with Catholic tastes and an extraordinary memory. His manner, too, was so pleasing and suave that one came after a time to overlook his repellent appearance. For a jaded and wearied man, he was no unpleasant companion, and Smith found himself, after a time, looking forward to his visits and even returning them. So Edward Billingham, the neighbor downstairs with the mummy, and Abercrombie Smith became friends when Edward screamed and fainted when something with the mummy happened. Clever as undoubtedly was, however, the medical student seemed to detect a dash of insanity in the man. He broke out at times into a high inflated style of talk which was in contrast with the simplicity of his life. It's a wonderful thing, he cried, to feel that one can command powers of good and evil, a ministering angel, or a demon of vengeance. And again, of Monkhouse Lee, he said, Lee? is a good fellow, an honest fellow, but he is without the strength or ambition. He has no ambition at all. He would not make a fit partner for a man with a great enterprising mind. He would not make a fit partner for me. At such hints and endowindos, Smith puffed sullenly on his pipe, would simply raise his eyebrows and shake his head with little interjections of medical wisdom. As to earlier hours and fresher air, one habit Bellingham had developed of late, which Smith knew to be a frequent herald of a weakening mind. He appeared to be forever talking, talking to himself. At late hours of night, when there would be no visitor with him, Smith could hear his voice beneath him in a low, muffled monologue, sunk almost into a whisper. Yet every audible word he could hear in the silence. This solitary babbling annoyed and distracted the student so that he spoke more than once to his neighbor about it. Hello, I keep hearing mumbling and talking in the middle of the evening. Belling, however, flushed up at the charge and denied currently that he had uttered a sound. Oh, but it wasn't me. You sure you didn't have a dream? He showed more annoyance over the fact than the occasion seemed to demand. Hmm. Had Abercrombie Smith had any doubt as to his own ears, what his own ears have heard, as not to be so far to find corroboration. Tom Stiles, the little wrinkled manservant who had attended to the wants of the lodgers in the turret for a longer time than any man memory could, marry, could, could carry him, 
was sorely put to it over the same matter. If you please, sir, he said, as he tidied down the top changer one morning, do you think Mr. Bellingham is all right? All right, Styles. Yes, sir, right in his head, sir. Why should he not be, then? Well, I don't know, sir. His habits has changed of late. He is not the same man he used to be, though I make free to say that he was quite never one of my gentlemen, like Mr. Hasty or yourself, sir. He's took to talking to himself something awful. I mean, blah, 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 murmur, murmur, talking. I wonder it don't disturb you. And for days, he'll keep his door locked, as I can't even make his bed. And then again, he'll have it open, the same as ever, wide open, as to all who passes by can see his mummies and his Egyptian things and all those gargoyle things. I don't know what to make of him, sir. I don't know what business it is of your styles. Well, I take an interest, Mr. Smith. It may be forward of me, but I can't help it. I feel sometimes as if I was a mother and a father to my young gentleman here in this building here at Oxford. It all falls on me when things go wrong and the relations come. There was poor Mr. Williams, who went mad in 47, and Mr. McAllister in 62, brain softened from overwork so soft and mush his brains turned into they said he lived in the very in this very room i don't speak of deliriumsness which i've had three on each floor and four on the lowest but mr belling sir i want you to know what it is that walks about in his room sometimes when he is out and when the door's locked on the outside Talking nonsense, Styles. Nonsense, man. What's gotten into you? Maybe so, sir. But I heard it more than once with my own ears. That's right. And my ears are sharp as they can be in my old age. I heard it as right as you can hear anything. Rubbish, Styles. Rubbish. Simply, simply nonsense. Very good, sir. You might want to ring the bell if you want me. If you hear anything, you start crying. Maybe I won't come because I will just assume that it's just not what you're hearing. Right? Right? Okay, so now call me when the ghost comes. Amber Crombie Smith gave his little head to the gossip of the old manservant, but a small incident occurred a few days later, which left an unpleasant effect upon his mind and brought the words of style forcibly into his memory. Bellingham had come up to see him late one night, and was entertaining him with an interesting account of the rock tomes of Beni Hassan in Upper Egypt, when Smith, whose hearing was remarkably acute, distinctly heard the sound of a door open in the landing below. Clunk! Bunk! There! Some fellow's gone in and out of your room, he remarked. Yes, I heard it distinctly, as my ears are sharp. William sprang up and stood helpless for a moment, with the expression of a man who is half incredulous and half afraid. Oh, I'm not afraid. That's ridiculous. I surely, I locked it. I am almost positive that I locked it, he stammered. No, no one could have opened it. It was locked. Why, I heard someone coming up the steps now, said Smith. Billingham rushed out of the door, slammed it loudly behind him, hurried down the stairs. About halfway down, Smith heard him stop and thought he caught the sound of whispering. A moment later, the door beneath him shut. A key creaked in their lock, and Bellingham, with beads of moisture upon his pale face, ascended down the stairs once more and re-entered the room. It's all right, he said, throwing himself down in the chair. Oh, it was that fool of a dog, yeah, the dog. It had to have been the dog. And he pushed the door open, 
I don't know how I came to forget to unlock it. How did I forget to unlock the door? I didn't know you kept a dog, said Smith, looking very thoughtfully at the disturbed face of his companion. Yeah, I hadn't had him long. I must get rid of him. He's a great nuisance. Your dog? He must be afraid if you find it so hard to shut him up. I should have thought that shutting the door would have been enough without locking it. I want to print old styles from letting him out. He's some of some value, you know, and it would be so awkward to lose him. I'm a bit of a dog fancier myself, said Smith, still gazing hard at his companion from the corners of his eyes. Perhaps you'll let me have a look at it? Certainly, but I'm afraid it cannot be tonight, for I have an appointment. Is that clock time all right? Then I'm a quarter of an hour late already. You'll excuse me, sir, I'm sure. He picked up his cap and hurried from the room. In spite of his appointment, Smith heard him re-enter his own chamber and lock his door upon the inside. This interview left a disagreeable impression upon the medical student's mind. Bellingham had lied to him and lied so clumsily that it looked as if he had desperate, desperate reason for concealing the truth. Why would Bellingham lie to me? Why would he tell me that he had a dog? He doesn't have any dog. And he also knew that the steps which he had heard from upon the steps was not the step of an animal. There was no dog noises, no barking noises, no little tip-tap pitter-patter of dog feet. But if it were not, then what could it be? What could it be? There was Old Style's statement about that something which used to pace the rooms at times when the owner was absent. Could Styles be right? Is there some kind of mystery, ghostly thing that paces about? Is it true? Could ghosts be real? Could it be a woman? <gasps> Maybe he is a woman, rather than inclined to the view. If so, that would mean disgrace and expulsion to Bellingham if it was discovered by the authorities. So that his anxiety and falsehoods could be accounted for. Yes, if he had a woman. Hmm. And yet it was inconceivable that an undergraduate could keep a woman in his rooms without being instantly detected. Yes, women are so noisy, chatty, 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 and the smell of perfume and the noise and the giggles, hee, 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 hee. But the explanation of what it might be, there was something ugly about it. And Smith determined as he turned to his books to discourage all further attempts at intimacy on the part of his soft-spoken and ill-favored neighbor. But his work was destined to be interrupted that night. He had hardly caught up the broken threads when a firm, heavy footfall came three steps at a time from below, and Hasty in blazer and flannels burst into his room. Still at it, old boy? Plumping down into the wanton armchair. What a chap you are to a stew. I believe an earthquake might come in and knock Oxford into a cocked hat, and you would sit perfectly placid with your books among the rooms, just reading and continuing as if nothing happened. However, I won't bore you for long. Three whiffs of Becky, and I'm off. What's the news then, said Smith, cramming a plug of a bird's eye into his briar with his forefinger. Nothing very much. Wilson had made 70 for his fisherman, freshman against the 11. They said that they will play him instead of Buddycomb, for Buddycomb is clean off color. He used to be able to bowl a little, but it's nothing but half volleys and long hops now. Medium right, suggested Smith with an intense gravity which comes upon a varsity man when he speaks of athletics inclining too fast with a work from leg comes with the arm about three inches or so he used to be nasty on the wick the wet wicked oh 
By the way, have you heard about Long Norton? Yeah, have you heard? What's that? Young Norton has been attacked. Attacked? Oh yes. Young Norton was walking down High Street, and he was just turning, with a hundred yards of the gate of the old schools. But oh, ah, that's the rub. If you said what, you would be more grammatical, Norton. Norton swears that it was not human, and indeed, from the scratches on his throat, I should be inclined to agree with him. You should see the big old gash on his throat, like claws of a monster. What? What then? You say? Have we come down to spooks? Amber Crombie Smith puffed at his scientific contempt. Norton being attacked by something non-human that cannot be. Well, no, I don't think that is quite. The idea, either. I'm inclined to think that if any showman has lost a great app lately, and the brute is in its parts, a jury would find a true bill against it. Norton passes that way every night, you know, about the same hour. There's a tree that hangs low over the path, the big elm from the rainy's garden. Norton thinks that the thing dropped on him out of the tree. Anyhow. He was nearly strangled by two arms. These claws, these vicious arms, which he says were as strong and thin as steel bands. What kind of monstrosity, superforce, human or monster thing could it be? He saw nothing. Only those beastly arms that tightened and tightened on his throat. He yelled, his head up nearly, and a couple of chaps came running, and the thing went over the wall like a cat. It just squandered off the thing. He never got a fair sight of the of it the whole time. It gave Norton quite a shakeup. I can tell you, I can tell him it's been good as a change in the seaside for him. A garreter, most likely," said Smith. "Very possibly," Norton says, "but not. But we don't mind what he says. The garreter had long nails, and was pretty smart by swinging himself over the wall. You know, like how did he jump over there? And by hiding in the tree." Maybe stalking Norton for days and knowing his path. By the way, your beautiful neighbor would be pleased if he heard about it. He had a grudge against Norton, you know, and he's not a man, from what I know of him, to forget his little depths. But hello, old chap, what have you got yourself in your noodle? Oh,、uh, nothing. Smith answered curtly. He had started in his chair, and the look had flashed over his face, which comes upon a man who is struck suddenly. By some unpleasant idea, you looked as if something I had said had taken you by the raw. By the way, you have made the acquaintance of Master B since I looked in last. Have you not, young Monkhouseley? Told me something to that effect. Yes, I know him slightly, but he's been up here once or twice. Well. You're big enough and ugly enough to take care of yourself. <laughs> he's not what I should call exactly a healthier sort of Johnny, though. No doubt, he's very clever and all that. But soon you'll find yourself, find out for yourself. Lee is all right, old boy. He's a very decent fellow. You'll like him. Well, so long, old chap. I roll Mullins for the vice chancellor's pot on Wednesday this week. So mind you come down in case I don't see you before. Come cheer me on, old sport. He clattered off with a trail of smoke behind him, like a steamer. While Bobine Smith laid down his pipe and turned stodgily into his books once more, but with all the will in the world, he found it very hard to keep his mind upon his schoolwork. It would slip away to brood upon the man beneath him and upon the little mystery which hung around his chambers. 
Then his thoughts turned to the singular attack which Hasty had just spoken of, and to the grudge which Billingham was said to the O of the subject of it. Hmm, could it then that grudge of the attack was Billingham able to act like a beast? The two ideas would rather persist in rising together in his mind as though there was something close and intimate connection between them, and yet the suspicion was so dim and vague that it could not be put down into words. For ten days, the medical student confounded himself so closely to his studies that he neither saw nor heard anything of the either men beneath him. Quiet. Well, it must have been my imagination. At the hours when Bellingham had been accustomed to visit him, he took care to sport his oak as though he was once more heard knocking at his outer door. He resolutely refused to answer it. One afternoon, however, he was descending the stairs. Just as he was passing, Bellingham's door flew open and young Monkhouse Lee came out with his eyes sparkling and a dark flush of anger upon his olive cheeks. Closed at the hills followed Bellingham, his fat, unhealthy face all quivering with malignant passion. Oh, you fool, he hissed. You'll be sorry. Very likely, cried the other. Mind what I say, it's off. I won't hear of it. You've promised anyhow. Oh, I'll keep that. I won't speak, but I'd rather little Eva was in her grave. Once and for all, it's off. She'll do what I say. We don't want to see you again. Got it? So much Smith could not over avoid hearing what they were saying, but he hurried on for he had, had no wish to be involved in their dispute. There had been a serious breach between them. That was apparent, clear enough, and Lee was going to cause the engagement with his sister to be broken off. Smith thought about Hasty's comparison of the two and the dove, the toad and the dove, and was glad to think that the matter was all at an end. Billion's face, when he was in a passion, was not so pleasant to look upon. He was not a man to whom an innocent girl could be trusted for life. As he walked, Smith wandered languidly and could have caused the quarrel, and what the promise might be which Billingham had so anxious that Monk Housley should keep. That was the day of the sculling match between Hasty and Mullins, and a stream of men were making their way down the banks of the Isis. A May sun was shining brightly, and a yellow path was barred with the black shadows of the tall elm trees. On either side of the gray colleges lay back from the road the hoary old mothers of mines, looking out from their high mullen windows at the tide of the young life which swept so merrily past them. Black hat tutors, prim officials, pale reading men, brown faced, draw hatted young athletes in white sweaters or many colored blazers were all scurrying towards the blue winding river with, with curves through the Oxford meadows. Amber Crummie Smith, with intuition of an old oarsman, chose his position at the point where he knew that the struggle, if there was a struggle, would come. Far off, he heard the hum, which announced the start and the gearing, the gathering roar of their approach, the thunder of running feet, and the shouts of the men in the boats beneath them. A spray of half-clad, deep-breathing runners shot past him, and the craning over their shoulders he saw Hastings pulling a steady 6.30, while his opponent, with a jerky 40, was a good boat's length behind him. Smiths gave a bellow of approval. That's it, my boy, that's it. Row those oars, row! And pulling out his watch was starting off again for his chambers when he felt a touch upon his shoulder and found that young Monk House Lee was beside him. I saw you there, he said in a timid, de deprecating way. I want to speak with you. If you should spare me in half hour, 
This cottage is mine. I share it with Harrington of King's. Come in and have a cup of tea. I must be back presently, said Smith. I am hard on the grind at present in my studies. But I shall come in for a few minutes with pleasure. I would have come out only hasty is a friend of mine, and I'd like to see him roar, roar in the boat race. So he is mine as well. Hasn't he a beautiful style? Mullins wasn't in it. But come into the cottage. It's a little den of a place, but it's pleasant to work in during the summer months. It was a little square white building with green doors and shutters and a rustic trellis work porch with a drapery of creepers over it, standing back some 50 yards from the river's bank. Inside, the main room was roughly fitted up as a study deal table, unpainted shelves with books and a few cheap autographs upon the wall, a kettle sitting upon a spirited stove, and were there tea things upon a tray on the table. Hey, what kind of tea would you like? Try that chair and have a cigarette, said Lee. Let me pour you a cup of tea. I have some good ginger tea, some chamomile tea, and some, oh, some really just good old English black tea. It's so good of you to come, for I know that your time, it's a good deal taken up. I wanted to tell you that if you were, I should change my rooms at once. Eh, what? Smith said, staring with a lighted match in one hand and his unlit cigarette in the other. Yes, it must have been very extraordinary, and the worst of it is that I cannot give my reasons, for I am under a solemn promise, a very solemn promise, and my word is my word. But I may go so far as to say that I don't think Bellingham is a very safe man to live near. I intend to camp out here as much as I can for a time. I will keep my item. Not safe? What do you mean not safe? Uh -huh. That's what I mustn't say, but do take my advice, Amber Carmy Smith, and move your rooms. We've had a grand row today. You must have heard us, for you came down the stairs. Oh, I saw that you had fallen out. He's a horrible chap, Mr. Smith. That's the only word for him. I have had doubts about him ever since that night when he fainted. Do you remember when you came down? I taxed him today, and he told me things that made my hair rise. He wanted me to stand in with him. I'm not straight-laced, but I'm a clergyman's son, you know, and I think there are some things which are quite beyond the pale. And the things that he is doing, I only thank God that I found out, found him out before it's too late, for he was to have married into my family. Ah. Oh. This is all very finely, said Abercrombie Smith curtly, but either you are saying a great deal too much or a great deal too little. Very well, then. I shall give you a warning, Mr. Abercrombie Smith. If there is a real reason for worrying, no promise can bind you. If I see a rascal about to blow up a place with dynamite, no pledge will stand in my way of preventing him. You understand, sir? Well, dynamite and blowing a place up and fire, those are large concerns. Ah, but I cannot prevent him, and I can do nothing but warn you, sir. Without saying what you warn me against, sir, that perplexes me much. Against Bellingham. <laughs> but that is childish. Why should I fear him or any man? I mean, I'm a student in college studying, for Christ's sake. We're at the University of Oxford. I mean, we're just students. I can't tell you 
I can only entreat you, young man, Mr. Abercrombie Smith, to change your rooms. You are in danger where you are. Change them before it's too late. I don't even say that Bellingham would wish to injure you, but it might happen, for he is a dangerous neighbor just now. You have been warned. Perhaps I know more than you think, said Smith, looking keenly at the young man's boyish face. Er, suppose I tell you that someone else shares Bellingham's room. Yes, someone else is in there, so perhaps it's in him. Monk Hasley sprang up from his chair in uncontrolled excitement. <gasps> you know then, he gasped. You've heard it and you've seen it. A woman. Then he dropped back again with a groan. My lips are sealed. My lips are sealed. I must not speak. I must not say another word. I must not say another word of this matter. You've been warned and I told you. That's all I can do. Well, anyhow, said Smith, rising, not likely that I should follow myself to be frightened out of rooms which suit me very nicely. It'd be too little, too feeble for me to move all of my goods and chattels just because so you say that Billingham might, in some unexplained way, do me an injury. I think that I shall just take my chance and stay where I am, and I see that it's nearly five o'clock. I must ask you to excuse me, sir. He bade the young student adieu in a few curt words and made his way homeward through the sweet spring evening, feeling half ruffled, half amused, half rattled, as any other strong, unimaginative man might have been thinking, who was menaced by a vague and shadowy danger. I wonder what he was saying. It must be a bunch of rubbish. Move my room, move my room. Who wants to move? Do you know how hard it is to move? Oh, I certainly must think this over. There's got to be someone in his room. There's got to be a simple explanation. Ghost my arse. There was one little indulgence which Abercrombie Smith had always allowed himself, however closely his work might press upon him. Twice a week, on the Tuesday and Friday, it was invariable custom to walk over to Farlingford, the residence of Dr. Plumtree Peterson, situated about a mile and a half out of Oxford. Peterson had been a close friend of Smith's elder brother, Francis, and as he was a bachelor fairly well-to-do with a good cellar wine and a better library of books. His house was a pleasant goal for a man who was indeed of need of a brisk walk. Twice a week then, the medical student, Abercrombie Smith, would swing out there for long dark country roads and a spend a pleasant hour in Peter's comfortable study discussing over a glass of old port or sherry and gossip about the varsity or the lack, latest black letter which the book dealers had sent to his host. Oh, what books do you have today? On this day which followed his interview with the monk's house Lee, Smith shut up his books at a quarter past eight, the hour when he usually started into his friend's house. As he was leaving his room, however, his eyes chanced to fall upon one of the books which Bellingham had lent him, and his conscience pricked him for not having returned it. However repellent the man might be, he should not be treated with this courtesy. Taking the book, he walked downstairs and knocked at his neighbor's door. There was no answer. Hmm. Bellingham? Bellingham? But on turning the handle, he found that it was the door was unlocked. Pleased at the thought of avoiding an interview, he stepped inside and placed the book with his card upon the table. The lamp was torn down, but Smith could see the details of the room plainly enough. It was all... As much as he'd seen it before, the frieze, the animal heads, the gods, the hanging crocodile with the noose around his neck, the table littered with papers and dried leaves and all these exotic Egyptian things, the mummy's case stood upright against the wall. But the mummy itself was missing. 
There was no sign of any second occupant in the room, and he felt as he withdrew that he had hardly, he had probably done Bellingham injustice. He, had he a guilty secret to preserve, he would hardly ever leave his door open so that all the world might enter. Why did he leave his door open? And where is the mummy? The spiral stair was as pitch black as ever, and Smith was slowly making his way down the dark, dark hallway when he suddenly conscious that something had passed him in the darkness. There was a faint sound, a whiff of air, a light brushing past his elbow, but so slight that it could scarcely be certain of it. He stopped and listened, but the wind was rustling among the ivy outside, and he could hear nothing else. <gasps> Somebody's there. He's walking by. Styles, is that you? He shouted. There was no answer, and all was still behind him. It must have been a sudden gasp of air, for there were crannies and cracks in the old turret, and yet he could almost have sworn that he heard a football by his very side. He had, he had emerged into the quadrangle, still turning the matter over in his head when a man came running swiftly across the smooth crop lawn. Is that you, Smith? Hello, Hasty. For God's sake, come at once. Young Lee has drowned. End of part two of Lot 249, the ghost thrilling story by Sir Conan Doyle. Thank you for listening and come back for a lot number, number 249, part three.